Honestly, so, yeah, yes. Yeah, go ahead. So, like, yeah, just like, hello, listeners. Welcome to a Fortune Card reading. Uh, my keyboard is very, very clicky clacky. So whenever, like, I'm on the phone with my aunt and I'm still, like, typing because I'm usually, like, fucking around somewhere else, uh, my aunt is like, it sounds like you're really working over there. It's like, I promise you I'm not. I promise you I'm I'm online shopping or something. I, I promise. <laughs> I taught myself how to type when I was in, like, eighth grade, eighth or ninth grade, because I wanted to write and I was taking too long to write by hand. Mm -hmm. And like we had done the whole, you know, thing where they, so for millennial listeners or people who are, are very, very young and, and have never had to deal with this, they used to cover up our hands on the keyboard with like a mm -hmm. cloth and you had to mm -hmm. learn how to type on like the QWERTY keyboard, like without mm -hmm. looking, that was like the big test and I yep. could never do it. And then I was like, I have to learn how to write really, really fast. And so mm -hmm. I learned how to do it myself and it's like what were you guys doing covering the covering the hands just like give people a break <laughs> yeah i i had a lovely writing teacher called mavis beacon mavis mavis beacon which was uh for our younger listeners a software program in which a terse computer voice yelled at you through varying games and if your finger position was wrong you lost points because you could still type but if you did it wrong, you were wrong. Which is the American education system in a nutshell. You could get to the right conclusion, but if you do it incorrectly, you are still wrong. Oh, that drives me crazy with like the math stuff because yes. we went from how we were taught to Common Core and then you have all these like screaming, crying fights with your kid as you try to teach yeah. them how to do it and they're like that's not how my teacher wants to see it and if I don't do it this way then I get marked down and you're like you got the same answer and you did it faster I guess I'm just confused yeah it, we could talk too long about the American education system uh hello welcome to unfortunate required reading again uh today we're talking about a hundred years of solitude a book that I made Tori read because welcome to back to school so I told my husband what we were reading and he's like, 100 years of solitude, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I don't have time to explain to you the dangers of solitude. As yeah, I was, oh man, yeah. Um, it's one of those things, it is a very funny title because, you know, to those of us who have pathologized what introversion means as a way to cope with the fact that sometimes we're just trash people. What? I mean, you're not wrong. I I have written so much about this. I hate how the internet has taken introversion and just let it become a pathology to just you being a trash human being. It's like, I don't like going out. I love canceling plans with my friends. He, 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 I'm an introvert. No, you're a dick. It's kind and of the same okay. thing with how they do extroversion too. Oh, yeah. it's totally fine that I interrupt the middle of a conversation because right. I'm an extrovert. It's like, no, you're you're being trash. I mean, realistically, like, the internet pathologizes everything. Like, someone could commit a murder. Oh, I'm a Scorpio. It's like, oh, they're a Scorpio. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like, oh, well, you know, they're a Scorpio. Of course they did. You know, so, I mean, it, realistically, the internet pathologizes everything. But, like, I guess, like, the introvert one hits really close to home. Because I am very much an introvert. I don't look like one because I'm Black and I'm not afforded those kinds of luxuries. 
I'm not allowed to do a lot of those things. I have to constantly look affable and sound affable and appear alert and appear like I'm constantly listening, even though I hate every minute of it and wish that I was asleep. Is that introversion or clinical depression? You be the judge. Um, I had a little joke the other day talking about weaponized like star signs. I was like, I have two moods and I shared the whole thing from Hercules, the we are worms, worthless worms. And then the uh, um, Jennifer, I think it's Jennifer's body, the whole thing of her with the lighter on her tongue, the I'm yes. a god. I go, yes. it's one or the other with my personality. I go, I don't know if that's because I'm a Sagittarius or if because I have clinical depression, you be the judge. Honestly, that's me with the crab with a knife as a cancer. It's just constant crab with a knife. It's always that. And I don't know if it's the years of trauma and complex PTSD or the fact that I am indeed a July cancer to be determined. <laughs> but crab with a knife, that's it. I have a very lovely coworker who this week found out that I record this podcast and I'm a little worried she's listening to this right now going, oh dear God, I'm training this woman on the phones. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, so, Tori, what are we, uh, drinking today? So, I'm honestly drinking a Diet Coke because I always am, but, um... Happy 40-year anniversary to Diet Coke. Yeah, happy 40-year anniversary to it slowly destroying my pancreas. Anyway, um, technically, from this book, I, for our eating and drinking, I bought coffee with milk and no sugar, because that's the way the Buen Diaz family drinks it. I do have a coffee. There is some residue of sugar previously in it, but there is creamer and also spiced rum. That sounds delicious. It's pretty heckin' good. Uh, I get to celebrate winning over my devious former employer. I'm going to order some cookies from Crumble. Oh, that sounds good. Really love those fancy-ass cookies. I shared them in the Sophie the Magpie Discord, and uh, someone was like, this is a family server. Like, you can't be sharing those pornographic cookies here. <laughs> like, this is this is a Christian <laughs> server. You can't be sharing those saucy cookies here. My sister in Christ, those are not appropriate. <laughs> yeah, my, my brother in Christ, those are not modest cookies. <laughs> those cookies are immodest and immoral. <laughs> I remember driving through LA. God, I miss LA like really, really no, bad right now. To the point where I'm like, LA. Um, if you watch, um, oh come on, brain, the Canadian show that I'm obsessed with, Letter Kenny. Um, <laughs> and I remember driving down the street and looking up and being like, "Does that say erotic cakes?" And my friend just losing his crap, laughing at me because I was like so surprised that a store would advertise that they did that it wasn't like secretive but uh yeah did yeah. you see that a uh, bottle of rosé i sent you mm, where did you send it messenger on tiktok, on TikTok? did you so send I it this morning yes or was it okay then i haven't seen it yet so i sent tori a uh a tiktok of a bottle of sparkling rosé in the shape of an anatomical penis oh uh, yeah i haven't seen yours yet but i have seen that on the internet and i'm just like, I was like why though i need it just so i could say it I like, you're like hey we're gonna celebrate some pan here pan and dionysus not even i just feel like it's like one of those things that it's like oh company's over send to bring out the good wine and you just bring out the, the cock bottle <laughs> 
That just sounds like you and I at my house. <laughs> I, right. I know what I'm doing. Well, technically you're family, but also company. <laughs> we have company. Bring out the okay. skull vodka and the penis wine. <laughs> All right. So we are away from uh, one act playland. Welcome back to Short Story Long, which is short in comparison to the book, but is back to me. <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. I sat down and I was going through Spark Notes and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do all the chapters of this book. And then I went, I don't want to die. Um, this book is intense. We were jokingly referring to it as Encanto but sadder and Encanto with incest. Um, yeah. There is, there's, I mean, you could probably teach like a three quarter course on this and still be going on. Like, oh, there yeah. are so many details and so many characters and so many backstories. It's so we're just going to give you kind of the the high points. And the funny thing is, this is what if you if you spend a lot of time on the internet and you watch like Crash Course and stuff like that, this is what everybody does because if you sit down and you go through every single thing in this book, you're going to hurt yourself. So yeah, it um, it, it very much does feel like every part of this book could be another book. Yes, or like its own mini series. Yeah, like like when we thought that Harry Potter was good fiction. Remember those years? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when we thought remember when we thought Harry Potter was good fiction? You know what the really funny thing is I've noticed um as someone who is now self-publishing their own stuff. Even the stuff that is published by a major publishing house, it's not necessarily good. Okay. Yes, I am realizing it's, that. It's the tenses are terrible, the grammar is terrible, half mm -hmm. the time the spelling is wrong. But mm -hmm. you know what? If it's smut, it's gonna sell. Um, and I'm like, and that's not a critique at all. I write and read it. Okay. We've, we've admitted this. Um, but it, it's just hilarious to me because it's like, you have this whole publishing industry mm -hmm. built on like, oh, well, you know, look at us. We, you know, originally published like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. And we've done all these things and you're sitting there going, that doesn't mean that's what you're still publishing and you've bought like all the other small publishing houses. So anyway, moving on. The book starts with Colonel Ariano Buendia remembering standing in front of a firing squad and remembering the time his dad introduced him to ICE thanks to a bunch of travelers in town. They use mm -hmm. gypsies. We don't have feelings. I was about to say, they use a yeah. lot of terminology that we no longer consider savory. Yeah. We do not, of course, advocate for language like this. It was literally a different time. Don't add us. Yes. Um, so first of all, and, and and John Green does a really great adaptation and discussion of this in Crash Course. Mm -hmm. There's like four different tenses in this sentence. There yes. are multiple time periods. You have a guy remembering being in front of a firing squad while remembering the time that his dad took him to go see ice for the first time. Mm -hmm. Okay. We've got that. Okay. So the book, um, this book is a history of the solitary town of Wakanda and its founding mm -hmm. family, not Wakanda, which is much cooler. Anyway, this is hard good? to, because this, yes, I do. This is a very, 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 very beloved book. And I will tell you, I did enjoy reading it, but it's going to sound like I'm an asshole. So I just need you guys to go with it. Um, 
These are the stories of the Buendias and all of their scandals. At first, the town that they're from, Macondo, has no interaction with the outside world, and that seems to suit them just fine. Um, but they do have travelers that come into town and show technologies unheard of, like telescopes, a box of ice, a bunch of other stuff, prostitutes. Um, that becomes a whole thing later. Jose mm -hmm. Arcadio Buendia is the head of the family, and he is really big on discovering the mysteries of the world. And he tends to be very impulsive. Note, this name gets reused a lot of times in the family, like that and all, almost all the Jose Arcadio Buendias tend to be impulsive and inquisitive. Um, mm -hmm. He has an older child with the same name who gets his strength. He has a younger child named Ariano who gets his intense focus. Like the name gets repeated over and over and over as do a lot of the character traits. This mm -hmm. book is not designed to make it easy to understand. Just roll with it. Yes. Um, and the funny thing is now that the Mayfair Witches is getting their own series, um, it's an Anne Rice book series, I see so much of the influence of this book on that. But that's a whole other thing. Um, the town moves out of its solitary nature after a feeling of innocence. And after connecting mm -hmm. with other towns in the region, we start to see civil wars that bring death to Wakanda, which previously had no experience with death and violence. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of like Eden. Um, Ariano becomes the leader of the liberal forces and takes on a life as a kind of mythological figure known as Colonel Ariano Buendia. Makondo changes governments multiple times during and after the war. At one point, the cruelest kid in town, Arcadio Buendia, becomes a dictator um, before being shot by a firing squad, and everybody hates him. Um, and even his mother is like, how did I birth you? And she's like hitting him in the head, which was hilarious. Um, a mayor is appointed, and there is a peaceful reign until there's another civil uprising, and the mayor is killed. Mm -hmm. Civil war eventually ends with a peace treaty. So there's all sorts of events that go on in between these things, births, deaths, marriages, intense love affairs. A ton of the Buendias are horny bastards. They take mm -hmm. lovers, they go to brothels. One of them ends up with 17 children that all end up with this weird ash mark on their forehead while they're, um, they're going through Ash Wednesday. And that stays permanent. We'll talk mm -hmm. about magical realism. Some of them are quiet, shut themselves up in solitude to hide and discover the mysteries of life. These include a dude who makes tiny golden fish before melting them back down and restarting them. So basically he takes coins, melts them into fish, sells them, gets more coins, melts them back down. Uh, there's also one guy who pours over ancient manuscripts to try and figure out texts written in Sanskrit from one of the travelers. And mm -hmm. that traveler does appear as a ghost to the family because he was lonely being dead. Um, the women are an utter disaster, too. <laughs> we have Rebecca, who's not only married off way too young, but also eats dirt and plaster from the house when she's stressed out. So all the time. Um, mm -hmm. One of my favorite things is later on in the book where this guy goes to try and rent the house that he thinks is empty. But Rebecca's in there with a gun and chases him out. <laughs> and she's like super old. Um, one girl is super outgoing, brings home 72 of her friends from boarding school because she doesn't understand that that's probably not okay. We have one woman who gets pulled into a hammock for insane sex acts. We get another one who wears nightgowns with a hole in the crotch to consummate her marriage. Like, it's it's insane. We have one girl who thinks that she, or who has been told that she will be a queen. It's it's a whole, yeah. There's um, the a lot going on. The matriarch of the family, Ursula Ogoran, works like a crazy person trying to keep the family together, even with their huge familial differences, constant repeating of generational curses, and pretty weird acts of modern modernity that mess with our family. Um, mm -hmm. So we have 
capitalist colonization that comes into Macondo, which of course we're going to talk about, and the American Fruit Company. They form a banana plantation and exploit the land and the workers. Um, mm -hmm. They are Americans, and the Americans set up their own sectioned off part of town to separate themselves from the rest of Macondo. Um, the workers get sick of being treated terribly because of course they are, and they strike. Unfortunately, the army sides with plantation workers and massacres the striking workers. Um, they dump the bodies into the sea and there ends up being five years, well, four years, 11 months and two days of unending rain. Um, it's created a flood that basically destroys what's left of Macondo. Buendias also begin to slip away as the town slips away. The village is left solitary again and the last few remaining family members turn back to solitude and incest to separate themselves from the outside world. The last surviving Buendia finds the prophecies, so all those documents written by the traveler, and they're written mm -hmm. in Sanskrit because they are now 100 years old. He's able to translate them and realizes they've all, all the acts and horrible things that they've been through have been foreseen and they are living through a preordained cycle. The end. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> And again, I don't, I don't hate this book. I know it sounds like I hate this book. I don't. It's just I don't like think, uh, no. I don't think it sounds like you hate this book. I mean, I just kept going like, oh my god, if there was therapy, yeah, it is okay. I'll say this: this book is heavier than you expect, uh, yes. which I think is true about a lot of books that come out of colonialism and colonized people. The same that you can say about those who come from backgrounds of being indigenous, the same that you can say about African, <coughs> excuse me, apparently I'm allergic to colonization. Um, the same that you can say about a lot of books about African-American creators and those formerly enslaved. Like there's a heaviness to it that you don't see on the surface or that you wouldn't expect uh, John Green makes a big point out of this, but this also hit very home very, very quickly. The, there's a lot of, like, shocking levity in moments, which is, like, very much, like, how minorities deal with a lot of this stuff. Um, if you listen to this podcast or even if you listen to anything that I do outside of this, I'm constantly cracking jokes. And it's usually to add a little bit of levity to how horrible situations are. Um, I spend most of my mother's funeral making people laugh. And uh, my therapist grabbed my hand and she said, I didn't realize that you deflect using humor this much. And we yeah. had a very, very long conversation about that. There's a part where when they're standing there, basically the, the strikers <clears throat> are standing there. Um, they realize that they're about to be shot. And there's mm -hmm. a whole description about how basically they don't believe it's real at first because the sound of the machine guns is just so rat-a-tat-tat it doesn't sound real mm -hmm. and so it sounds it, it they they're like kind of like this is so fake this has got to be fake mm -hmm. and they there's a whole part of levity and then a bunch of people get shot and killed oh, um, yes. and what's really fucked up is that is based on a real incident that happened it in is marquez was from yes um uh, so there's again a lot going on uh, in this. Do you want to talk about uh, some Adam and Eve figures first? Or do you want, yes. is there another uh, piece that is more tantalizing to you? Um, I kind of want to get that one out of the way just because it's real short. But okay. um, basically we have 
the original Jose Arcadio Buendia and Ursula as kind of the Adam and Eve figures. They're the mm -hmm. original parents. They're the mm -hmm. ones everybody comes from. And mm -hmm. Macondo, before you have um, death and stuff come to it, is a lot like Eden. Um, it's yes. not... It's not even like a far cry of a of a comparison. It's like nobody dies and nobody's getting killed. Oh, we should look at the outside world. Oh God, we're all dead. Right. And there is very much, you know, like an original sin uh, you know, inciting incident. Um, I don't quite think that the original sin is quite as a uh, woman heavy as, you know, the Garden of Eden story is, which is why a lot of people hate it now is hey we're gonna blame women for everything even though it's literally not her fault but pop off i guess um <laughs> my favorite thing about that is even in the bible there's like basically she goes hey you should try this and he just takes it he doesn't think about it doesn't do anything about it doesn't question it just doesn't mm -hmm. he's like oh because well, the woman is so manipulative no she's not there's uh... I'm always so torn about talking about the Bible and religion because there's so much of me that, you know, like this is what I was born in. This is what I was raised with. And then there's another part of me that just anytime I hold any amount of thought to it, I just start screaming. Yeah. Just, <laughs> you just start screaming. And it's like, we've used this for so long to rationalize such terrible behavior by so many people and it's just mm -hmm. i almost feel like it's one of those things that it's like okay you guys you you we clearly can't be trusted with this stuff anymore like pull it back take it back everyone just 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 return your bibles to sender we obviously can't be trusted with this anymore you know we'll, we'll try to pick it up in a few more years but just like for loco we clearly cannot be trusted with this information <laughs> You know, on our own. It's why, it's why, you know, the Apocrypha was hidden. I get it. There's parts of the Apocrypha that are absolutely brain melting. I understand why the church was like, no, you bitches can't be trusted with this. We have anti-Semitism now because some of you guys misread the whole Judas thing. We've been trying to tell you about the Judas thing, but now we have anti-Semitism. Clearly you whores can't handle the Apocrypha. <laughs> Yeah. There's just a, there was just a tired pope so many years ago that it's like, guys, guys, no one said do anti-Semitism. No one said that. No one said do anti-Semitism, guys. Come on. I think what is so funny for me is I was raised in California. And so we were very much in elementary school. Racism doesn't exist anymore. And we all hold hands and are happy. And then you get to college and you're like, oh, no, no, it's... It's still, um, I went to UCI, the, um, all of the joke nicknames for it are extremely racist, um, and, except under construction indefinitely. That one we can go with, but <laughs> it would make me so mad because we had a lot of South Asians there. We had a lot of, of folks from China. We had a, we had the largest population of Vietnamese people in Orange County outside of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a problem, but people made it a problem. And it's the same thing with like anti-Semitism. You're going, there's no way that there's still people out there who burn books by people just because they're Jewish. And then you see like whatever that Europa group was and they're doing it. And you're going, oh my God, 
Oh, if you ever want to lose genetics, fucker, like if you ever want to lose faith in humanity, go on your local uh, news website. So for us, that'd be like myessay.com or KSAT or WOAI and read the comments. My favorite from this was a 12 foot python that escaped. Uh, a 12 foot python escaped in Cibolo. And someone had commented, this is my favorite, said, oh, I didn't know they let Beto out on his own. Oh, my God. And, you know, I almost laughed. Almost. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. The Python was a pet. And he's been returned to his home. I... Mm. It's exhausting being an American. But to be fair, it's the same thing. The United Kingdom still is incredibly racist. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know I, that from experience being out there and people are like, oh, you're American. Oh, you live here. I can tell you a bunch of things that I wouldn't normally tell people who have melanin in their skin. And you're going, I would like to leave this pub now. Yeah, there's. We could have another show about that. But yeah, there's some nice Adam and Eve uh, discussion. But removing some of that uh, patriarchal bullshit, which again, really is going back into that whole like a world that is post-colonial. If you look at a lot of myths that are not influenced by Christianity, they are more egalitarian. They are not always as patriarchal. I'm not saying there is no patriarchy. I'm just saying they are not all as patriarchal. I was going to say, there's a lot of pulling of women into uh, hammocks in this book. <laughs> the, uh, I, I am not saying, you know, I do not believe in the noble savage that it's like, oh, they live in this just like egalitarian, genderless world where just people have their tits and their dicks out and they're just foraging for berries. No, I don't believe in that either. <laughs> I thought that was the future the liberals wanted. I mean, oh, did you see the bear <laughs> that was... Uh, that was high off his ass on Mad Honey. No. Do you that know sounds... what Mad Honey is? I don't, and I want to know what it is. So Mad Honey is a honey that is collected, that is uh, brewed by bees in Turkey and in the Himalayas because the bees get nectar from this particular rhododendra plant that is and actually a neurotoxin. Huh? Can you buy it? Can you yes. buy it? Yes. Yes. In small doses, it produces a magic mushroom-like high. Uh, in heavier doses, it can cause seizures and death because it's still toxic, but you can't, like, they say it's a delicacy, famously. And uh, there was this bear in Turkey just fucking tripping balls. Just, like, this bear is blasted. And they had to, the Turkish police had to take him to a local wildlife rehabber because this bear's just toasted. And just so y'all know, I am putting the link to ga our, uh, Gastro Obscura about yes. Mad Honey, so you know what the heck we're talking about. There's also Corpse Honey. I learned about that. Oh, I know about Corpse Honey. Because, of course, I do. I, I feel like I knew about it, and then I was reminded of it, and I was horrified. <laughs> the bees are eating flesh. There, there was something that said that God, I can't even remember what it was, but there is evidently some um, element now that is in basically all honey in the U.S. Um, I want, it's not cocaine. That's on our money. 
Also, cocaine isn't a natural element. Yeah, I, I know. I don't think this was real. Yeah, so and you know, the best part is I'm like trying to find it, and it's like honeybees get more waggle danced with hair on cocaine, and I'm like, I'm done now. I'm hiding yeah, away. I do love the sect of science that is just let's give animals drugs. It's like this is the effect of cocaine and rats. Why are we giving rats cocaine? Don't I feel like we can just rats. say don't do cocaine. We don't need we don't need to see rats. You can just say don't do cocaine and that's fine. Okay. So let's talk about cyclical time. Uh yeah. Yeah. Um, time is an illusion that helps things make sense. So we're always living in the present tense. So with this book, everything is a cycle. Um, mm -hmm. And there's actually, if you look at religions outside of Christianity, and there is some of this in Christianity as well, there's kind of mm -hmm. this belief of this endless cycle. Um, mm -hmm. In Norse mythology, a lot of the myths are believed to be something that reoccur, mm -hmm. um, which blows people's minds it's kind of fun but a lot of what we see as far as this book is generational mistakes and curses that keep being repeated over and over and over as well mm -hmm. as repeating names we've kind of talked about a little bit mm -hmm. um those are symbols of the the fact that hey you know we always think as the next generation we're going to do better and we're going to make things better and it's going to be great and then half the time we repeat the same things that our parents did um or our relatives or it, it's it's kind of fascinating to me how many times in this book you read about somebody with the same name and go, I bet you they're going to do this thing. Oh, look, well, they did that thing. And I guess like as someone who's had to go through generational trauma like this, how little of it is intentional? Because I do think that a lot of people now like we made a reference to Encanto earlier. And there's one thing about Encanto that I think a lot of white uh, readers and viewers missed is they got to the generational trauma part. They can air quotes understand that, but they make it sound like women are just like sitting in the back, like honing generational trauma, like it's a battle axe. And that's not true. Right. It's like, not intentional. Like it's, it's rarely intentional. I'm not going to say it's never intentional. Cause you know, we all have that one crazy auntie. <laughs> We all have that one crazy auntie who's approximately 150 years old and is only kept alive by evil spite and schemes. Uh, but how little intention there is to it. And really, it's, it's that adage of traumatized people traumatized. And I lived so much of that is, you know, not understanding my aunts and how they traumatized me until I heard about how they were traumatized by their mom and how their mom was traumatized by her mom. And how her mom was traumatized by her mom. It wasn't until I was able to start pulling on those threads. And don't get me wrong. This is well into my adulthood. That I was able to start untangling that ball. And I'm not done. I probably never will be. I'm at a place that I'm okay with where the ball is. And now it's easier. Deep, deep quotes with that. To process when they are traumatic. But I understand that this is a ball that they were given and it's a ball that's been rolling way before my time and way before theirs. And to be a little personal, um, Please. 
I did have a very close relative once when I was like, hey, I, I can't do this. I really think that this is negatively affecting me. I feel like I should mm-hmm. be doing this instead. Who was like, mm-hmm. hey, I had to go through it. If I had to suffer, so do you. Those were the yeah. exact words. Yeah. And I remember sitting there going, I don't think that that's how this works. And No, it's it's not supposed to. And yeah, I heard that all the time growing up. It's, oh, well, my father did this to me. What? Our ancestors were doing cocaine off of leopards. That doesn't mean we should be doing it. I feel like we should rename this episode Mad Honey and Cocaine Leopards. (laughs) Shit. People would get confused. Like, there's a lot of things that our ancestors were doing that we should not be emulating. No. No. Like, don't sit here and be like, oh, well, my dad did it. I turned out fine. Says like don't the beat most your wife. person. Yeah. yeah. Don't beat your wife. It's yeah. D- don't, don't hit your don't kids. Be trash. Yeah. Don't don't be garbage. I, I don't understand it. But we do it. We do it all the time. And we rationalize that, you know, oh, this is how it's always been done. And, you know, to make this again, you know, kind of tying it back to, you know, the whole like post-colonial and, you know, person of color perspective, how much utter devastation comes from trying to break that chain um i remember seeing tangled with a friend who was hispanic and we get to mother knows best oh god and we're both just sitting there holding each other's hands crying because it's not just a fun song it's this is our mom this is our mom that that song is traumatizing i and it's 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 so perfect and i don't think disney even realized what no. they were doing or how good they were getting it Absolutely but i know an not. entire generation of women who are like oh my god oh my that's god it. yes that's-, that's it there's a there is an entire generation of women who better understand gaslighting because of it and then promptly ran it into the ground uh a few years later but for a while we were doing okay um but you know, it's hard to break those chains. And then, you know, there's this like entire generation of African-Americans and Hispanic women and Asian women and men as well. I don't mean to exclude them, you know, who are getting therapy, who are doing the work and are trying to break these bonds and just the vitriol we get back that you're not supporting the family. You're not helping the family. Like it's the fucking Sopranos. You're not here for the family. You have to maintain the family business. The family business is abuse. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. I won't do it to my kids. I'm I'm not going to do it anymore. And how devastating that can be. And, you know, you see that in this book with the repeating of the names, the repeating of a lot of the same bad things that happen. Um, You also see it in just the absolute batshit way people uh, cope with things or not coping like eating drywall <laughs> drywall raw earth um one point in time they're talking to one of their their great great grandmother who is not all there there's it's this book is really hard if you've had family members who have dementia just yes, as, um, yes. <laughs> because at one point in time the kids are playing around her and they're like grandma's dead and she's like, I'm not dead. I'm talking to you. And they're like, 
she she can't even talk to us and like it's this whole thing where this this poor woman with like severe dementia is basically being told she's dead and she eventually dies like after yeah. a long enough period of time because she's just like oh yeah anyway um i guess i am dead it's ugh, oh i had a i had a step-grandmother who was amazing but um mm -hmm. she lost all of her faculties towards the end of her life and it was one of those things where we to this day don't know what rationality was behind why she was still alive mm -hmm. um she was gone she was completely gone it was basically mm -hmm. just like catatonic figure sitting in a chair and mm -hmm. i don't know if she was like communicating with deities or something and that and she needed more time or whatever but i remember your ritual is not complete how, yeah how sick you feel mm -hmm. when they pass away and you're relieved um you feel yeah. like a bad person and that's the funny thing is there's this was studied by like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and all this stuff of like, you have that brief moment where you're relieved and you're like, okay, they're not suffering anymore. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible person, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a normal part of grief. So just, you know. yeah, um, it's, it's weird. Cause my, <laughs> well, yeah. Cause like, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you say that, like, you know, my, my grandmother passed away of lupus and she had dementia as well. And, you know, again, coping with humor, I remember looking at her when she got the dementia diagnosis because she was diagnosed years before she died and she did, she held up pretty okay. And I remember looking at her and saying, the day that you don't remember me is the day that you're already dead to me. And like, we joked about that, but that was an understanding that like, the minute you stop remembering who I am is the minute that you are already dead. Therefore, I can grieve you as I know you now and not the person you're going to end up being. And that was a joke we had regularly. And then I will never forget the day that I called and my aunt said, do you want to talk to your grandma? And I said, yes. And my aunt says, Amanda's on the phone. And my grandma says, who is that? And it's like, and we're done. Grandma died. Now we're waiting for the body to catch up. And yeah, yep. this is hard to read if you've gone through stuff like that. Uh, yeah, let's talk about some of the grief stuff in here. <laughs> we have characters whose like entire living is just making funeral wreaths. Mm -hmm. um, once death comes to Makondo, it basically becomes a way of life. It's mm -hmm. in discussion all the time. Um, one person gets shot in the head or shoots himself mm -hmm. in the head. And you realize it because there is an entire blood trail that goes through the entire town. So this yeah. is where we're going to go into magical realism. <laughs> because 90% of what we're going to talk about going forward involves magical realism. And um, we have to preface magical realism because I feel like it's something that, uh, once again, is ruined by white men. A lot of people have an idea of magical realism in their heads, which is perpetuated by Disney and lazy uh teen apocalypse fiction writers listen they're doing their best <laughs> am i wrong though i enjoy it am i incorrect though <laughs> like i feel like you know because i was listening to the crash course episode before this and you know i'm listening to john green talk about magical realism and it almost didn't feel like magical realism because what he's describing is actual magical realism, not the lazy white version we've been taught is magical realism. 
I will tell you that if I had known John Green would had such a hard on for Gabriel Garcia Marquez before reading Looking for Alaska, I would have predicted the ending. I feel and I like say that so, with love, John and Hank. I say that with love. So much of John Green in hindsight is so obvious. And it's kind of infuriating. Like he really is sad girl Stephen King. Where, like, so much of it is just so obvious in hindsight. Like, oh, no, this story is set in dairy. Shocking. I wonder if he also had complicated feelings about the East Coast. Hmm. Like, he really is just sad, Tumblr, basic white woman Stephen King. More so than Stephen King is. So a lot of what goes on in this book, especially with magical realism, we have things, obviously, for those who, who haven't listened to us talk about magical realism before, it's basically aspects of things that wouldn't happen in real life, but show up to kind of explain a plot point or to really give the feeling of, of the whole thing. Um, for example- I would say there more is... feeling than plot point. Okay. Um, and I agree. There, There's a part where they're- there's an insomnia plague, mm -hmm. right? And nobody dies from it, doesn't cause any problems for them physically, but it's boredom that, that gets them. And this is mm -hmm. like the whole thing of like, oh, we need to branch out. Um, we have a an almost five-year flood after people are thrown into a river. We have that trail of blood that goes through the entire town. Okay, let's mm -hmm. be honest. The human body doesn't have enough blood to lead a trail through the entire town for one person who shot themselves in the head. But it sounds pretty. Also, you're probably not going to get a uh, whole thing of flowers just falling from the sky with nothing happening. Like, um, you're not gonna have a woman who just floats away. Like, but the images of it are what help us understand mm -hmm. how severe something is. Um, mm -hmm especially when you have the situation with the um, the American Fruit Company where the, the people open fire on their workers and then their workers are thrown in, in the river. Mm -hmm. um, you understand that this is a five-year period of mourning. Mm -hmm. This is people learning to live without their family members. This is the cruelty of capitalist colonialism. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you you made a really good plot point here about about how Latin American writers use magical realism. Did you want to talk yeah. a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, John Green does it better. Once again, John Green, despite my uh, whinging coming in clutch, that magical realism really did become a tool for South American and Latin American writers to explore the horrors of what they were going through with colonialism and post-colonialism and even neo-colonialism, which I think is important to mention because there is always one person inevitably who says, oh, well, colonialism ended here. Then they got neo-colonialism, which was basically just colonialism, but with more capitalism, which I would argue is not an improvement. Colonialism in a new coat. It's... That's all it is. Uh, did you see that Amazon is thinking about building company towns? I saw that and I got really, really uncomfortable. And I was like, parable of the sower, parable of the sower. Oh my God, it's happening. And um, not just parable of the sower, but it's like, have we forgotten that that has ended well approximately 0% of the time? 
I mean, literally, we were responsible for a banana republic. Yes. Not the store at the mall. Yeah, we have. We probably need to explain. Well, we will explain shortly what a banana republic is because, yeah, people only know it as a store that questionable men shop at. So, so basically, just it kind of comes from the fact that the company that is now Chiquita Banana <laughs> mm -hmm. um, went into Colombia and set up mm -hmm. basically their own town and mm -hmm. killed a bunch of people who weren't part of it, and the Colombian government agreed to it. And America sent money. And so now anytime that we have a, well, usually a Latin American country um, where we have contributed heavily with capitalism or um, bribing the government, we refer to it as a banana republic. Um, that was very, very popular in the 60s. Um, it was very popular before that. Um, there are documentations of how many times we tried to kill people like Fidel Castro. Uh, with the CIA, that's that's not fake. That's documentation, and that's not me being here. Like, oh, okay. like the exploding cigar in Deadliest Warrior. <laughs> yeah, which um, is still my favorite thing in Deadliest Warrior. What what cracks me up is you know you have the whole conspiracy theory thing, and people are like, "Well, MK Ultra." I'm like, "MK Ultra was real. Mm -hmm. We have proof that they destroy documents. Mm -hmm. We had a guy jump out of a hotel window. Okay, like." We got documentation. Right. And I guess to, to the point, um, it isn't just because I think that by making this America centric, we all we also do sort of remove the horrors of what the locals did to each other, because I feel like that's the other side of a lot of this stuff is there's never so like I feel a lot of this um, when talking about slavery and um how that happened where you either have this completely white centric narrative of just white men coming off of boats with like fucking nets just dragging people out of their homes or you really play up the part of oh it was men selling out each other it was kings and money and greed like there's never a balanced way to talk about this stuff because it is so monstrous it is so terrible it is so hard to believe that you either have to make a boogeyman out of the white man, which is very easy to do. Or you make a boogeyman out of the locals, which is also very easy to do, especially if you're speaking at someone who is now diasporate or removed from those original acts, but you are still dealing with the echoes of that trauma. Gesturing today. <laughs> like I just want to like take moments of this entire podcast and just be like, here, this is a class. <laughs> Amanda will explain to you why you need to calm the F down and listen. Well, I just, I, you know, and again, like I saw this so much, you know, when we talked about slavery for five minutes when I was in school that, you know, a lot of the people that were like me that were African-American were like, oh, it was brother selling brother. And it's like, no, it wasn't. It's like, oh, it was it was white men raiding villages like Vikings. It's like, it wasn't that either. But acknowledging the reality of it is so much worse. Something that I think this book does a really, really good job of is yeah. not discussing internal histories with the family. The, there's... And, and this is something that we see very heavily in the United States. It's something that's starting to come very heavily into consciousness is we don't teach our trauma. We don't teach the things that we've done and then we repeat mm -hmm. 
um, kids in cages. Huge point. Um, in this particular book, a lot of people repeat things because they don't know their own history. Yeah. Um, even yeah. down to the the parchment, you know, how many people spend time trying to understand the Sanskrit so that they can figure mm -hmm. out what Makedes has written down mm -hmm. only to be like, after a hundred years, oh, this is literally everything we've done. And and part of me knows that it's supposed to be like, oh, look, this, these are the predictions of our family, but it is literally just the family's history. It's yeah. the family's history that nobody really understood. There's a huge plot point about having to write down all of the, the names and information and addresses of um, the Colonel's children mm -hmm. because he one has 17 of them, mm -hmm. but so that they can find them again. And they, yeah. and that's like a very big thing of like, they have those records later on and they can find them. Mm -hmm. um, but originally that wouldn't have been something that anyone wrote, would have written down. Mm -hmm. You know, these, these children were not considered to be legitimate. You know, mm -hmm. they were uh, a lot of them one night stands or, you know, <laughs> it's, with that lack of context and that lack of understanding of where you come from or mm -hmm. what has been done before. And we saw this in like the giver and stuff too. Um, mm -hmm. You tend to make judgments that aren't nuanced and aren't yeah. thought about. But, and you do consider that cycle. You can continue with that. But I'd also argue, and I think the book does a great job of this is talking about how hard it is then to teach that because so much of history is written by those who win which often is the colonizer or the enslaver so you know again that's something that a lot of black people hear from white people is oh you need to learn your history you wrote our history there There's, is a yes an amazing part in this book where there is a younger kid who has spent a lot mm -hmm. of time with one of his relatives and mm -hmm. his relative tells him everything that happened at the banana mm -hmm. massacre, every little detail. Mm -hmm. And the kid comes out and they refer to him as like preaching like Jesus. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and he's telling all the adults, no, this is, this is what happened. You know, this is what really occurred. And they're like, what are you talking about? Our history says that, you know, nothing like that ever happened these weren't these weren't really people like they had attorneys arguing that nobody could um that they they didn't have to pay for the death of employees because they weren't real people yeah so you have this kid who's coming forward with the truth and saying hey um this is what really happened mm -hmm. and it becomes such a big deal of like oh this kid is so wise beyond their years um, yeah. But I mean, we see a lot of this in the U.S. right now with like critical race theory. Like, we do. It's we see so frustrating. <laughs> we see a lot of it, and um, this is where I'll pimp a local organization, SACAM, the San Antonio African American Community Archive uh, and Museum, where the point of that is to collect a lot of that oral tradition that our grandparents, our great grandparents, our aunts, and our aunties know because they have it. They were witnesses. And as they get older, we lose those stories. We lose what it really was. Because again, we only know history from the perspective typically of the colonizer or the enslaver. I regret always that I did not listen to my great grandparent 
my great grandparents. I was a petulant teenager, like most petulant teenagers, and I was bored to death listening to these old people who smelled funny and lived far away. And it wasn't until at 90 something years old, my great grandfather recited the first stanza of Annabelle Lee perfectly that I realized one, we are related. <laughs> and two, oh shit. Like, oh shit. Like, he knows things and he could talk vividly about the Great Depression and its impacts here. Because again, we're fed a narrative of the Great Depression that it was all, you know, New York and then Dust Bowl. But it was different in every state and then in every state and every region. The Depression in Denison was not the same as the Depression in Dallas, was not the same as the Depression in El Paso, was not the same as the Depression in Austin, San Antonio, Houston. So that's why SACAM is so important. It's giving people the tools to be able to become reporters of their own family legacy and thus add to this big community archive so we never forget those stories. And I have included a link for in our uh, notes on our website this week. I mm -hmm. wouldn't grab it because that's really cool and very important. Yeah. SACAM is amazing. They have a really, really nice museum uh, that I think is moving to La Vita soon. Ah. Yeah. So might have to go on a day trip. But, you know, the, the, the point being is that, you know, while it is easy to say, oh, well, learn from your mistakes, we don't know what our mistakes were. All we know is the history that has been taught to us. And if you're anything like us over here in the U.S., the history that is taught to us is that of racist old people. So something that Texas does horrifically, and I'm going <laughs> to throw this out there. I mean, there's a lot of things. I And I live here, and I, I, I love Texas, but there, there are things. Um, there are things. When I first moved here, so this is probably about seven years ago, there was a debate about a textbook. And the textbook, this was the only one that was being considered at the time for history. Mm -hmm. um, their section on Mexican-Americans mm -hmm. just said that they were naturally lazy. And I remember sitting there being like, do y'all know any Mexican-Americans? Because one, really not true. And two, and two. <laughs> fuck thought this was okay in the year of our lord whatever it was like yeah that's what like, that is a huge problem with a lot of um especially in the u.s and especially in texas when you want to talk about history being written by those who win oof to, it, only in the southern united states is history written by those who lost am i right <laughs> civil war What's interesting, too, is this is just a conversation that, that I've had with multiple people. In the South, the racism is very clear and you can find it. In the yes. North, it's buried a little bit better. It's kind of like I was saying in California, we're raised as everybody's holding hands, nobody's mad at each other, and then you get older and you're like, holy crap how racist is this and in um, a lot of ways i would honestly argue that i mean both are bad but i think that's a little worse is that oh, under terrifying. the guise of this neoliberal bullshit that um i i was actually on my other podcast and we were talking about um the debate that happens in boys love spaces 
where a lot of people are saying it's fetishization, which is a word that no one knows how to use anymore. And we actually had a scholar on Dr. Dr. Thomas Badnett, who was a brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, And we ended up talking about like how this neoliberal bullshit is how we get to an America that forgets that Roe v. Wade was only signed into law a few years ago in context and now has been overturned because neoliberalism is comfort. It is saying these things that we thought were always stable and are always there. Oh, gay marriage. We don't have to protect it. We live in a society that allows that. Interracial marriage, of course that's in all of our laws. It's okay. We're safe. We've never been safe. (laughs) Right. We've never been safe. We will never be safe. We also talked about um, how making things family friendly is another way of neoliberalism uh, eroding away at institutions. Um, And I did make one funny joke, you know, because people are like, oh, pride needs to be a family friendly event. And I said there were no toddlers at Stonewall carrying bricks. Which is true. Like, when people are like, oh, pride needs to be family friendly. The fuck you on? Pride needs you to be what? You can make events that are family friendly for pride. You know what? Yes. You have the ability to do that. You um, can make your own whole event. Hell, I encourage it. Be free. Please. Because please. you're right. There should be a space that is family friendly for the queer youth. It's like, not going to be that in the Castro. That's yeah. It's not going to be a fucking market days in Chicago. I want to <laughs> see my go-go dancers. <laughs> I want my go-go dancers and poppers. I don't want that to be family friendly. Yeah, poppers should never be toddler friendly. <laughs> like I don't want. Like oh, can we make this pride event toddler friendly? No, I want my lollipop shaped like a dick. Given to me by a drag queen who's wearing nothing but pasties, glitter, and bad thoughts. That's why I go to Pride. <laughs> I want to get wasted. I want to see looks. I want to see my friends. And I want gay men to fawn over my tits. Because gay men love how short I am, but how big my tits are. Because of the universal experience is gay straight bi whatever everyone can agree that tits are lovely all i can think of right now you do you watch have you been watching what we do in the shadows the most recent season mm-hmm. <laughs> gay is in gay is hot gay is what i want <laughs> yeah like no i don't want that to be a fa- i don't want that to be a family friendly event i didn't go to the halloween block party in the gayborhood in dallas to see a bunch of screaming toddlers <laughs> I love a pun. It's literally <laughs> called the Gaberhood. I love this like, so much. I did not go to the Halloween block party in the Gaberhood with my tits out, squeezed into a sailor girl uniform to have there being a bunch of screaming children there. That is not why I went. Oh, flashbacks to West Hollywood. What? I know. Okay. Uh, do you want to talk about violence normalized and post-colonialism or do you want to go straight into mirrors and black bandages? Let's let's go into the violence. I choose violence. (laughs) So you see this a lot. You know, I mentioned it earlier that especially, you know, in 
colonized and uh, diaspora people that there is a lot of violence that is discussed very like in a chill manner. Uh, we can go back to that famous first line that John Green seems to have a throbbing erection for. Uh, where am I wrong? I just feel bad. I'm like waiting for the day that Hank Green finds our podcast and then plays it for John and just starts cackling. I say all of this with love because I'm very much of the camp that they are powerful white men who have a voice and have an audience. And while I appreciate everything that they've done, I also understand approximately 80% of every commentary everyone has ever had about them. I do think it is very, very strange that John Green continues to write romances about manic pixie dream girls. I do think that's very, very weird. I think a lot of his depictions of people of color are tokenistic and questionable at best, narrowing all of them down to the quirky brown friend. I think his hard on for literature that is not his own and his dismissal of English history is just another neoliberal bullshit scam. And that they use approachability to mask a lot of the more insidious parts of their brand. I do want to point out that if John ever listens to this, Amanda's being nice. You should hear Amanda talk about Aaron Mankey. <laughs> I hope that man steps on a tack. Just a series of tacks. I don't want him to die. I don't want anything horrible to happen. But I want that sellout to step on a tack. This just feels like you want to put him in a room full of Legos. I really do. And he used to be so good. And I used to believe in him. And then, I don't know. Did the fame go to his head? Has he always been like this and just no one was paying attention? So anyway, normalized violence is post-colonial commentary. I'm, also, I'm sorry. I love the point of like, this is Amanda nice. You don't want to see. <laughs> this is nice, Amanda. You don't want to see Amanda mean. But um, you do see that a lot. Um, oh my God. Uh, Things Fall Apart comes to mind. Where there's a lot of violence that is very, very normalized. And then usually undercut with some kind of like pithy comment. Uh, that opening line in this book that again, John Green seems to have a hard on for. Is then undercut by, and then we discovered ice. Like it was just in a fucking treasure trove somewhere. And we use an anachronistic term for travelers. Uh, you know what the visual depiction of this is? What? It is literally that meme that they've made from Loki, which is the, you know, the destruction of Asgard and all of its peoples. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very sad. Anyway. <laughs> it's, literally, it's literally that. And like, it's such a coping mechanism for, if you ever get to hang out on like black TikTok, that's all black TikTok is. It's just disgusting acts of violence that are happening in the community. And anyways, this hoe, you know, like, that's all we can do. That's all we can do. It's this or stop functioning. Why are, are Black and Scottish TikTok like the same thing? You know what? I would argue that both of us are minorities due to an oppressive colonialist structure. And we really should be combining our powers for good. Amen. Now, if I can get black, gay, and Scottish TikTok all to combine. Oh, my God. We would form a Voltron that could punch out England itself. 
that that's my my John Green hard on for the day. <laughs> if we can get all of those together, like that TikTok I sent you, it's like ah oh, yes, all the flags. <laughs> my favorite part is that the flag that's missing is the English flag that is a hundred percent what was missing from that whole thing. And yeah. he's like, I don't know what this flag is. The gays and the Irish. Yeah, because it's like, oh my god, it's it's Scotland, Wales. I don't know what this is supposed to be. The butcher's apron, Cornwall, the gays, and Ireland. Just a reminder, if you are an American and you go to the United Kingdom, do not walk around telling people that you are Scotch-Irish or I'm um, English with a little bit of Irish or I'm definitely Welsh and Irish. Don't, don't do it because you know what's going to happen? They're going to look at you. They're going to lower yeah. their sunglasses and go, you're a fucking American. Yeah. I know this. Because I've lived this. Yeah. I, I mean, was and young, and stupid, and adorable. I mean, in all fairness, like, I feel like a lot of uh, when we had, like, the Ancestry.com thing, a lot of African Americans were going through that. It's like, oh, my God, I'm from Nigeria. Yeah, please go to Nigeria and see how they feel about you. Please. I invite you. I welcome you to to go across the ocean and go to Nigeria and see exactly how they feel about you walking off of your flight and saying, hello, my brothers and sisters, I am one of you. I, I, I welcome it. Please tell me how that experience goes for you. And I will tell you that Scottish people are some of the coolest fucking people on this planet. I have never felt more welcomed by a community of people. Um, and I mean, there are some dicks. It's every country. Yeah. Um, but I mean, like these... I had people who would just sit down and hang out and drink with you and just be like, what are you about? Like, <laughs> um, it's not a bad time. It, it really isn't. It really isn't. Um, I was savage on a, uh, so I, I mentioned for my boys love podcast that uh, we had a discussion about fetishization and I was savage in a response to a snarky comment. And I'm waiting for that to come back and bite me in the ass. <laughs> So I'm going to talk about some more symbols real quick. So mirrors are a big deal in this, mm -hmm. um, about like self-reflection and being able mm -hmm. to see yourself and blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, one of the symbols that, that fucks with me is there is a woman who intentionally burns the shit out of her hand after this guy who's been massively in love with her forever is like, hey, we should get married. And she is like, I would never do that ever. And so mm -hmm. he wastes away and dies. And so she burns her hand and puts this black bandage on it and is basically just like wearing this black bandage forever as a sign of like guilt and remorse and just like almost a badge of virginity. And it is so fucking hard. I'm sitting there going, oh, God. <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. that just stood out. I don't know why. Yeah, no, there's a lot of very, very um, powerful symbols. Again, like we talked about this earlier on, that every part of this book really could be a miniseries. And I think it deserves that credit. You know, this is required reading in a lot of places. But I would argue, not enough places. Yeah, it's, uh, I will be honest, it's not something I read until we did this podcast. I, mm -hmm. I read other things by uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but... Mm -hmm. which we'll talk about later um, but Indeed this was will. never 
this was, you know, the book that everyone always talked about and the Nobel Prize winner. And I was like, oh, okay. But I mean, I will tell you the the best classes I took in college were Latin American film and like Latin American literature, just because there is so much richness in the language and the descriptions and yes, use of magical realism and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's so much history in Latin America. I mean, we don't even have time to go into all of it, obviously. Yeah, we really don't. Uh, but you want to yeah, talk we're about... Like, hmm? We're like, banana masker. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about the, the author a little bit? Yeah. Um, so Gabriel Jose de la Concordia Garcia Marquez was born March 6, 1927. And I apologize for any of our listeners who are like, that was horrible pronunciation. I apologize. Um, he was known as Gabo or Gabito in Latin America. So very, very affectionate. Um, mm -hmm. Right after he was born, his parents actually moved to another town and left him to be raised by his his mother's parents, so his grandparents. Um, mm -hmm. His parents had very much unapproved, or his, his parents, his like actual parents were um, very in love with each other and uh, their parents did not agree with it. It's actually kind of an inspiration later for Love in the Time of Cholera. Um, mm -hmm. Basically, the dad sent a ton of letters to um, Gabriel's mother. It was a whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. His grandfather survived the Thousand Days War and was highly respected as a liberal veteran. And he told his grandson a ton of stories about his life. Um, that's very very clear about you know the young man who comes forward and is able to tell all these stories about well this is what actually happened that's very much inspired by his grandfather yes. um, he would take him to the circus every year so you see a lot of that inspiration in you know the travelers coming um his his grandfather also took him to the united fruit company's store and that's where he saw ice for the very first time so a lot of the descriptions of ice and that experience are real um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez actually has said or said in multiple interviews that he made made nothing up. Yes, he had magical realism and all this stuff, but so many things were inspired by mm -hmm. just the world around him. Um, his grandmother was very big about telling him stories about the supernatural and the magical. Mm -hmm. And we definitely see both of his grandparents represented heavily in 100 Years of Solitude. Um, when he was in his early school days, he was very shy. He was not into sports. Um, he got nicknamed El Viejo, which basically just means the old man. And I think that is hilarious. That is such um, a mood. Almost, almost every image we have of him um, later er, is later in life. And so it's like he was just living his role early on. Um, yep. Like a ton of authors we've discussed, <laughs> he was, he went to law school or he started law school and then left and became a journalist. Yeah. Um, part of that, though, does have to happen because uh, in 1948, there were riots where he was going to school after the leader, Jorge Elcier Catan, was murdered. And mm -hmm. so his university was closed indefinitely. And the boarding house he was li living in burned to the ground. Yep. Um, he transferred to Universidad de Car Cartagena, I think it is, and started working with the newspaper El Universidad. Universal. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't finish college, but later on, Columbia University and a couple other places would give him an honorary doctorate in writing. Um, mm -hmm. He was a committed leftist and socialist. He had a very nuanced but close relationship with Cal wow, Fidel Castro. 
And um, he praised a lot of the achievements of the Cuban revolution, but he criticized a lot of the policies and how they played out because mm -hmm. they were incredibly destructive to the people. Yes. Um, after Marquez wrote a series of 14 articles in El Espectador about a Colombian Navy vessel that was carrying contraband goods and interviewed a sailor who survived the wreck, he found himself in very public controversy. The paper sent him off to Europe and then they were shut down by the Colombian authorities. Mm -hmm. um, he ended up marrying Mercedes Barchapardo in 1958. They had two sons. It's also reported that thanks to an extramarital affair with Mexican writer Susana Cato, he has a daughter named Indria Cato who is a documentary producer in Mexico City. So that's interesting. Um, so the story of how he finally got this, the elements of this book to come together, evidently he'd been thinking about it for a long time, but he was driving his family to a vacation in Acapulco and he gets this inspiration for 100 years of solitude. So he turns the car around, drives home, asks his wife to handle things for a while, sells his car and writes every day for 18 months. And mm -hmm. if you don't, women have a huge impact on like these famous writers his wife had to ask for food for the family on credit from their butcher and get like months worth of credit from their landlord just to be like hey can we just stay here he's almost done Correct. so the book was published in spanish in 1967 and then the english translation came out in 1970 and that's where we kind of see things explode uh, i'm going to include an article from vanity fair that was really mm -hmm. interesting about the creation and and how um it ended up becoming so popular but there's a whole thing about him meeting his future english language agent because she read everything in spanish and she was obsessed with it and made her husband read it so he took out a piece of paper and he wrote that she was going to be his agent for the next 150 years and then she came back with this really awful awful like deal for him for books and he's like whatever i'm gonna sign it like because he loved her so much and was like it's gonna be fine when they interviewed her she's like i'm not important why are you talking to me um this man smoked ciggies. He smoked 60 cigarettes a day. And this is I mentioned in the Vanity Fair. Yeah, that kind of kind of led like, to Like, I don't a lot smoke or anything, but I think that that's too many. So he ended up winning, and I don't know how to pronounce this, the Neustadt International Prize for Literature in 1972. This one I do mm -hmm. know how to pronounce. He won the Nobel Prize in 1982 for 100 Years of Solitude. And unlike mm -hmm. Sartre, he actually accepted it. Yes. Um, in 1999, he was having breathing problems and he was diagnosed with pneumonia, but it turned out to be lymph lymphatic cancer, which mm -hmm. if you're smoking 60 cigarettes a day, not to blame the victim, but yeah. So he had chemo in LA, the disease went into remission, but his life started to fall apart. His body was breaking down. In mm -hmm. 2000, a newspaper reported he was dying by mistake, which let's be honest, it cracks me up because all I can think of is that the grandmother laying there while the kids are going, she's dead, but I'm still talking. She can't even talk to us. Um, in 2012, his brother did announce that uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez was suffering from dementia and mm -hmm. he ended up dying of all things pneumonia. So what he was misdiagnosed with before. Um, and when he died in 2014, Colombia's president actually called for three days of national mourning. So yep. like, flags lowered, people in black, like it was a big deal. It was a big deal and rightfully so. I would say rightfully okay. so.
We have a ton of resources. Um, yes. I'll include them. Obviously, we use Crash Course, and then we made fun of poor John Green the entire time. I made fun uh, of John Green. Uh, we we include Professor Sweet, so uh, Thug Notes. Um, mm-hmm. There's a bunch of other stuff. There's a lot of links of Gabriel Garcia Marquez talking himself. Um, so most of it will be in Spanish with English translations at the bottom, just so you're aware. To clarify, then, there are interviews and stuff like that. It's not just like him like vlogging on TikTok. No, no, it's it's not like a thirty second unboxing video. It's yeah, literally, like it's, it's him being interviewed because it's like oh, just him talking to himself. Like he just like turned the camera on himself. It's like, hey, besties, welcome back to my channel. Like it's something. I hope you had a good time. I know I did. <laughs> did you have to read this in school? I sure did not, and you know. You can see why, because it's an interesting book, not about white people. So I obviously understand why we didn't read this in school. So I read Love in the Time of Cholera instead, um, mm-hmm. which, interestingly enough, what's our next book? The Time of Cholera. Uh, I, we get to we get to continue the tradition of Tori suggesting a book that literally only her and one other person has ever heard of. Okay, House of Spirits. Everybody's heard of Isabella Allende. Everybody's heard of Laura Esquivel for um, like Water for Chocolate. I don't know what you're talking about. Books that like, like literally only movie. Books that only one other person has ever read. And then I'm just like, hey, what if we do this obvious choice that is clearly taught in schools? And she's just like, that works. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Maybe I'll find out more about the courtship between his parents. Maybe. Yeah, it'll be fun. Maybe I'll be Uh, lazy. We'll find out. (laughs) Yeah, to be determined. It can be like our other episodes where we're just shooting the shit for a while, which is what we do anyways. Uh, If you would like to pay for us shooting the shit, you can do so at anchor.fm slash unfortunately required reading. So not laughing. Anchor.fm slash unfortunately required reading. Yes. Thank you for helping us keep the metaphorical and actual lights on. Yes, we do greatly appreciate it. Uh, thank you to those of us who do sponsor us. Uh, we, again, sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. Uh, we are all... Yes, hello. Uh, we are all over social media. You know you know where to fucking find us. It's in the, it's in the thing. Can we... <laughs> Amanda's tired. I'm tired and still have to go to Costco. Yeah, Amanda's tired. I have to go to the bank. <laughs> Why? Because yeah. I, I have to. I have to go do bank stuff, Tori. I don't know. It's a fucking bank. What do you do there? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we love you. Thank you for listening to us ramble about literature. Yep. See you again in the next one. Uh, be safe. Be careful out there. There is a lot going on in every part of the world, but just know that in whatever corner you're in, you are loved, you are special, and we appreciate you. Go read a book.